Ready? Absolutely. Here we go. Here we go. You're listening to Learning Transforms from the Faculty of Education at the University of Victoria. I'm Ted Rekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. And we're coming to you from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people and the Wasanish people. Welcome, Welcome to, to the show. show. So, Courtney, what are we talking about today? Well, we have the pleasure of having Olaf Kurgolson in here today. And he is the principal investigator of the Theoretical and Applied Science Laboratory, which from a person from the liberal arts side of education, I know nothing about. So it's going to be really exciting to, to have him on the show. Welcome, Olaf. Thank you for having me on the show. Mm-hmm. So I guess we should start off with asking in general terms for people who don't know, what what is your main focus? What are you doing these days? That's a great question. So I am interested in human learning and decision making, broadly speaking, and specifically using neuroscience to study how we learn and how we make decisions. Sure. Which leads me to a follow-up question. What is neuroscience? That's a, a tough question, actually, because neuroscience is a really broad field. Uh, you have people on the cellular end of things that study individual cells and how ion channels work in the brain, and you have people more on the end that I'm on, which is looking at systems, so which part of the brain does what, and using tools like brain waves or, or magnetic resonance imaging to peer inside the brain while people do things. So speaking of brain waves, I brought with me a, uh, something that you're familiar with, and I think you use it as one of your tools, one of these um, Muse headbands by the, I think it's Interaxon who makes them. And you're doing some really interesting stuff with this as a mobile EEG device in uh, in conjunction with researchers in the, the NASA Mars habitat on the big island of Hawaii. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, as as most people are aware, uh, NASA has decided that they're going to Mars. So they've been given a mandate to do that. So as uh, part of that mission, they're doing a lot of work in preparation. The project I'm working with is the Mars Habitat, uh, which is only one of a few habitats. There's multiple Mars habitats, but the one in Hawaii studies uh, what they call uh, human factors, so people. And uh, people are going to be locked away for three years in a small space, uh, as they go to Mars, stay on Mars, and come back. So the, the Mars habitat in Hawaii, or the high seas habitat, is specifically focused on studying what happens to people and what kind of people do you want to put there, and that, that's where our project sits. So how, how does that tie in with the, the MUSE headband and measuring EEGs? What's the, what's the link between that and the Mars habitat? Well, we already know from a, a large body of science, scientific research that People that spend long periods of time in isolation have changes in brain function and brain activity, and those result in changes in behavior. So we're going to be using the Muse headband uh, to monitor brain activity across the year that the the astronaut candidates are in the habitat. And we're hoping that we'll be able to predict when they start to go a little bit weird, you might say. And then, and then what? Well, phase one is just showing that we can do this. So the astronauts will be basically playing a a series of games on an iPad each day. And while they play those games, we're going to measure their brain function via the Muse and look at their neural responses to events in the game. Then after the fact, we're going to chart those sort of responses and look for patterns of change. So you could assume that, for instance, if there, there is no change in brain function, those responses will start change largely the same. But much like if you stop exercising, your heart rate might slowly 
creep up your blood pressure. We're curious to see if we can see changes in brain function that might relate to changes in behavior. So that's step one. Step two then would be to deploy this and then use this as a monitoring system so that when you start to see these changes, NASA would be aware of this and potentially could intervene. So just like if you blood pressure goes up a bit, the doctor might tell you to, to do more exercise. If we see changes in brain activity, they'll come up with an appropriate intervention. So that's really interesting. I, I didn't know that there was changes in brain activity when people are in isolation for a long period of time. What, what kinds of changes do you see and what sort of behavioral effects do those, how do they manifest in, in pay, people's behavior? Well, the scientific term for it is that people start acting funny. Um, <laughs> the, the Mars habitat's quite small, uh, and uh, you have six people in there for a year. So I'll give you an example of, of one of the first studies in the Mars habitat was the food study, and the standard NASA way of sending astronauts into space was with prepackaged meals. They realized that if you gave people not prepackaged meals but prepackaged ingredients, they would have a lot more uh, freedom in terms of of what they do with their food, and, and that led them to being happier and functioning better. So what happens in extreme isolation? Well, people just start to act weird is what happens. People, Some people get depressed. Some people uh, tend to isolate themselves from the others. I, I can't share too many details, of course. Uh, of course, but we are hoping that we can use the tech we have to hopefully find when that's going to happen and then possibly intervene. And so is this type of thing what already happens like with NASA? So when people go up and they spend time in the space station or anything like that, is this type of technology already being used or is it new frontiers in some ways? This is new frontiers. Mm. So the, the Muse headband is quite fascinating because when I finished my PhD here in 2008, if you had have told me that you could have a headband that you could buy at Best Buy that would accurately measure brain function, I would have told you you were living in fantasy land. And now, you know, less than 10 years later, there is a headband that can do that. So just like our cell phones got smaller and better and our computers got more powerful, brain imaging has become mobile and, 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 and easy to use. So NASA has some projects using this type of technology, but currently there's nothing in space. Cool. I think so. Yeah. And it sounds like if, even if we're talking about this in relation to extreme isolation, just thinking about to the people who are listening to this, it sounds like we're learning a, more about the human brain. I kind of assumed in 2018, we kind of had it all figured out in terms of the brain and what changes it and what does everything. <laughs> I know it was it, really, I'm quite ignorant with these things, but I was like, oh, it's 2018. Like you go through a CAT scan or a CT scan and they know everything and da da. da. But it sounds like this is, this is new in a lot of ways. It, it is. So uh, it's funny that you said that. When I finished my undergrad here at the University of Victoria in 1997, I was a Bachelor of Education graduate and I was a high school teacher for a couple of years. And when I went back to school, I took an elective course during my master's program in neuroscience and I asked just that question. Well, surely you know how people learn, so tell me how people learn so I can do teach better. And then I learned very quickly we know almost nothing about how people learn within the brain. We know that people do learn, but in terms of systems and mechanisms and, and what they're sensitive to, we, we know almost nothing. And that's true of, of a lot of things, like decision-making, which is something I'm quite interested in, is a largely unexplored area. And some things we know well. You know, we have a pretty good grasp of the parts of the brain that move the limbs, for instance, or the parts of the brain that process sound. But in terms of any of the more complex phenomena, a, a lot less is known. 
Yeah, so we know that we do it. We just don't know why and how it's done in between our ears. Exactly, and this is something I'm curious about in the education context because there are definitely a lot of theories about how people learn, but a lot of them haven't been empirically tested. They mean mm-hmm. anecdotal results or, or you know observational reporting. Uh, a good one that I always I always talk about is the idea, uh, sort of a pushback against mass repetition, which from a, a neuroscience perspective is insane because the the best way to strengthen neural connections is to repeat something over and over again which and if you translate that down to a classroom for instance then repetition is a good thing mm-hmm. and you only have to look at olympic athletes to, to know that that's true but somehow we, we've lost that in 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 some contexts yeah, there's another term that i associated with your thinking and and, uh, and that's neuroeconomics where you're looking at sort of decision making and thinking from a cost benefit perspective, what what does that involve? So neuroeconomics is a, a buzzword that's out there these days, and used to be what we called our lab. Uh, technically, you're referring to a group of people that are interested in how the brain learns and how they make decisions. We economists have had theories about this for a long time, and the problem is people don't actually follow those theories in the real world, and that's because our brains. So, for instance, uh, people have an emotional response which might make them do something that's not logical, and economists tend to assume rational choice. So my interest is, is just that, which is as you study learning and decision-making, we do have theoretical models, some from economics, some from other areas, and then we test those theoretical models and see if parts of the brain are actually uh, computing things that way. Uh, a good example would be that you, you've all been ter- told that you learn from your mistakes. That's not entirely true. What I, what I would tell you is you learn when your expectations and outcomes differ. So, for instance, it, if you have an expectation on a test that you got a, an 80 and you actually get a 60, that's a, what we call a prediction error, a violation of your expectancy, and that will drive learning. And that's a, a classic sort of offshoot of neuroeconomic theory is the fact that that computational approach to it is actually what your brain does. You can see parts of your brain that, that the response scales in line with the, the magnitude of the violation of expectancy, if you will. Wow. That's what I say. That's fair. Interesting. And so... I guess my my th- question is, when you're talking about this from and what you're learning kind of from working with NASA and doing this stuff, um, it sounds like I'm just thinking about, okay, so if we don't really know how we learn, if we learn from our mistakes and we don't, we're learning these things, it sounds like from this we could find out more about not just in a super isolated Mars type of context, but in a larger societal context, we can start to get a little bit more clear on why we do what we do, what influence our decisions, and how we can kind of utilize our processes in our brains to become more effective. Well, this is definitely the the awesome part about these mobile technologies is you can do that. So we have a classroom in the McKinnon building with 16 iMacs, and we have 16 Muses. So we can monitor a whole classroom of students while they're learning and start to peel that back. And I only think you're going to see these technologies deployed more and more in the sense that they're only going to get smaller and better. Uh, you know, mo- most of us now wear something on our wrist that will tell us about how far we've walked and what our heart rate was and things like that. And that technology's changed a lot and gotten better. And that technologies like the Muse will continue to evolve. In fact, the, the latest version of the Muse uh, is a partnership with Smith, the sunglass company, and the, the EEG system is built into a pair of sunglasses. Uh, battery life is 15 hours. Uh, and if you see me walking around campus wearing Smith sunglasses, chances are I'm recording my brainwaves while I do it. 
Okay, so I, I have a confession here, and, and that is that I, I use a Muse headband with the app for, for meditation. And you're familiar with the app where you've, yeah. you've got sort of three levels. There's calm, and there's neutral, and then there's the active state. So when you have a lab full of students, and they're wearing these, and you're measuring their brain waves, you're probably gathering raw data rather than just those, those three um, segments. When people are learning... What kinds of brain waves are they uh, are they generating? Are they in that active segment, or are we better off to be in that calm state for learning? It's a really good question, Ted. Uh, so, in general, when people are learning and they're struggling, you see more activity in the frontal part of the brain, and that's literally your cognitive control system gearing up to try to figure out what the answer is. And we have a game you can play with the Muse, which is if you're wearing the Muse and you and you see you can see the raw data. You can just tell, say to someone, well, starting from 10,000, count down by 17s, and you'll see a spike in activity over the prefrontal <laughs> cortex as people yeah. try to deal with that. Yeah. But if you say starting from zero, just add one, you don't see the same spike because the, the prefrontal cortex is, is used to a different extent. Other neural responses uh, happen. You know, There's different changes in patterns. So what Muse has done is they've taken a very complex set of data and trimmed it down to three things. So I, I don't know exactly what they do because that's a, a protected secret in a sense, but you can break the, the raw brainwave activity into different frequencies of activity. So some people talk about alpha power or theta power. Theta power is your prefrontal cortex doing its thing. Alpha is alpha power is neural oscillations about 8 to 12 hertz and it's associated with attention. So when you get people to learn things, there are some common trends, which is if you give the entire class, say, hard problems, you would expect to see an increase in theta power over the front of the head, and you actually see a decrease in alpha power over the back, because that means they're concentrating. So alpha is a bit weird. It goes down when you're concentrating uh, as opposed to up. But there are individual differences. That was that was just what I was going to ask. If you know what kind of variation do you see amongst the population, and, and are there some people that are in a in a calm state a lot of the time, and others that are fully active, or like you must be looking at huge variation? Well, that's our our new approach is to look within people. So we we track the same person over a period of time and try to establish what's normal for them. And then look for deviations from that and relate that to what, what's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's just because of these individual differences. And so this is even something that, you know, everybody could use. Like, Ted, you were saying that you use it for meditation. Best Buy. See, so Probably I could go Buy. to Best Buy and start to be able to use this in some ways to figure out how I learn and why I learn. And, you know, it's almost like an aid for me to figure out how to work with my brain. Obviously, it's um, more generalized than I think anything that you're working with, Olaf, because they do they do simplify it for those of us who don't know what we're talking about when it comes to any of this. Well, there, there are a number of apps on the App Store now for the Muse. So some allow you to actually see your raw brain waves and some allow you to see the frequencies and the, the power that, that they're And I've actually had, I do some teaching in the Continuing Studies program and I've had a few students that have bought Muses and have self-studied and they've told me some interesting stories about patterns that they've mm -hmm. seen. Uh, but yeah, for the actual meditation app to try to make it easy to implement, they decided to condense it. But to be fair, if you had someone meditate or do a mindfulness activity, you would see there's a predict a, a generally pretty common pattern of activity that you see in the changes that you see as you move into a meditative state are relatively consistent between people. 
Wow. So and, and this is a Canadian company. Am I, am I right? They're based yeah. in, in Montreal? Uh, Toronto. Interaxon is based out of Toronto. It's uh, a spin-off company from the University of Toronto, I believe. Uh, they're quite big now. They're actually the largest selling EEG company in the world. Wow. And it's mostly because EEG is a... You know, they sell a portable system for a couple hundred dollars, and most EEG sales are to hospitals. So their their volume of sale is is quite large. Mm-hmm. And they were quite popular. The uh, the Toronto Blue Jays use them, so they do mindfulness training before they play. Uh, a lot of professional sports teams have bought into this sort of technology and use it to see if it will enhance performance. And you've done actually done some research around that as, as well. Right now, our own Harvard Cats are uh, getting Muse tests before every game. Uh, we have a, a research team down there that is uh, essentially what they're doing is doing a fatigue assessment on players. But they uh, we're going to look and see if we can predict performance based on their brain activity uh, related to fatigue prior to performance. We had a bit of success with that last year. I had a, a former student, Anthony Pluta, who was able to predict batting performance uh, based on brain activity prior to batting. We're trying to generalize it a bit more because in a real game, it's hard to put a headset on someone right before they go out to bat. Right. But with the fatigue, we're hoping and what we expect to see is that people whose brains brainwaves look tired will perform worse in games than people who don't. And then potentially, again, you could inform the coach and Hopefully they can try an intervention. So my question is, one of the many, what are the, what are kind of you seeing? Because I think whenever we're doing research here, there's always like something that we want to contribute or some, how this could kind of benefit um, society in the future. So what are your thoughts on that? Because clearly like technology is advancing, you're learning a bunch of cool things, but I guess for people like me, I always have to place it in context of like, why does it matter in larger society? So I, I, that's a question for you. That's a good question. If, if you want to frame that within an educational context, um, students or children that have learning disorders probably have a different pattern of neural activity than, than students that don't. And currently, uh, these things can be challenging to diagnose because there's a lot of reasons why a student might have a particular deficit in learning. So this kind of technology at some point will become a diagnostic, which is when you go for this assessment, it will inclu- include an analysis of brain activity and that will hopefully provide some insight as to what, what's wrong with that particular child or, or more correctly, what could you change to help them out. Uh, the fatigue work is sort of like that too in the sense that we're hoping that people will do this before they fly planes, before they operate on people uh, so that if they're truly mentally tired, we can say, okay, maybe you shouldn't do this today. Because uh, right now, you know, it's kind of scary. The current gold standard in a lot of these industries is simply someone says, are you tired? And in some of these industries, the answer is always no. So we did some, right. we're doing some work with a mine in northern BC. And when they saw our fatigue survey, the chief mining safety officer just started laughing, going, well, none of these guys are going to answer these questions. And if they do, they're not going to tell you the truth. So I think this stuff you'll see slowly creep into society and that people will you know, either be doing discrete tests from time to time. Uh, or they'll, they, you might get to a point where you're actually wearing something that's monitoring that continuously. So that'd be particularly useful for people like long distance bus drivers and airline pilots, and you know who literally have people's lives in their in their hands or in, in their tin can. You know that they're piloting through this through the air. I I can't say too much about it, but it's another project we're working with with NASA, where we we are going to be monitoring people during a twelve hour flight simulation. Uh, and the whole point is to have something go beep at the point where they they're starting to be too tired to do the job. 
Fascinating stuff. Can can you tell us a little more about the the, the Mars? I know that there's probably um, kind of security implications and and things you can and can't say. But well, I can tell you how it's going to work, which is we've got these games that you play on on an iPad. There's two games. One sort of a test test general cognitive function, and the other one tests error evaluation or your your ability to process if something's right or wrong. And they take about five minutes to play each. They're developed by a UVic spinoff company, Suva Technologies. And the astronauts are going to play these hopefully every day, but at least every couple of days. And that's the way it'll look. They'll have their Muse headband. They'll have the iPad. The Habitat is solar power to charge everything. So they'll uh, do their tests, and it'll just be part of their daily routine. So just like you get up and you have breakfast or do your exercises, you'll do your brain health assessment. And that's the the data we'll be collecting. So the astronauts have quite busy days. They they have a lot of, they're basically assigned tasks that would simulate what it's like on Mars. So sometimes they have to go outside the habitat, and when they do, they have to wear full spacesuits. Um, they within the habitat, they can only work with what's there. So they they have had some interesting cases where they've had to build things, uh, not quite like the, the the movie The Martian, but to some extent they had to create things to fix problems that weren't anticipated. And uh, our little piece will just be a piece of that overall project. And you were there in, in May? I spent or- a night in the habitat. Uh, that's the longest duration that I will stay in. It's, it's incredibly <laughs> small. Uh, and I'm, I'm quite, uh, quite amazed that people will do this in the name of science. Yeah. And and that, of course, was before the uh, Kilauea began erupting as, as vers- it, vigorously it, as it is. Are, are they in any proximity to that or...? It's the other side of the mountain, but of course with a volcano, you could never know. So currently we're waiting for a go mission date to go back for August or September. I'll be going back to train the astronauts on how to use the tech before they go in. Because uh, once they're in, it's hard to communicate with them. NASA inserts a 20-minute communication lag to simulate the communication time from Mars. So there's no real-time conversations. You just write an email and they get it 20 minutes later. And then 20 minutes after that, you hear their response. So I'll be going out there to train them, uh, barring that the volcano doesn't decide to erupt on the other side of the mountain. So are they? That, is, is that habitat currently occupied, or they had to evacuate because of the volcano? It's between missions right now. So okay. between their, their, I think it's the seventh mission will be the one that's launching. They are currently in a down phase where they're doing recruitment, thinking about you know they have to process what happened in the last one and learn from the mistakes and and think about what they'll do differently. There's a bunch of other scientific projects like mine where people are coming up with things to test and do that. So a lot, like a lot of research, for instance, has been done on what type of people do you put into this. Mm-hmm. So if you think back to the original Mercury 7, you had sen- seven alpha males that were all Navy test pilots. That's not the group you want to lock in a small space for a year. You're going yeah. to have some problems. So the crews now are quite diverse. They get astronauts from uh, both sexes. They've got a wide age range. I, I forget how old he was, but he was into well into his 40s, one of the astronauts that was in last time. And they're really sort of, that's part of it, is exploring what sort of makeup of people do you put in. So they, they would select for personality and they must also select for kind of technical background and expertise. What What sort of... So training they, do they look for? Um, yeah, they have a they have a range of people that go in. So they they do definitely still have some military members. Then they have some scientists, and, and then they have some people who just want to see if they can do it. So they're screened in a way similar to astronaut candidates, uh, not quite as rigorous, but rigorous in the sense that they have hundreds of applicants for the six spots. 
and they generally tend to be all fairly educated people and 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 uh, but with diverse backgrounds because some of them will run science experiments that's their job and others are more on the exploration side of it and they go out and do simulated mars walks wow and people are that's crazy that's crazy to me that people you're, are excited shaking, to do you're that. shaking your head i know because i just the wow. thought of doing that just i can't even fathom because not only you have to get there then you have to live in a tight space and then you come back um and all this stuff is and this has never been done before no well, no definitely not this is one of the reasons so much work is being done on the front end which is uh, most people don't, don't know this but the international space station is driven from the ground uh when they went to the moon it was largely controlled from the ground so on the Mars mission, that won't be possible. So mm. NASA's a little bit concerned about the fact that they're going to have to send six people out on a three-year mission, and they're essentially on their own. Right. You know, if anything breaks, they have to deal with it. Uh, if anything goes wrong, they have to deal with it, and, and a, a recovery mission isn't really feasible. So other sites are testing the technology. So there's other habitat sites where they're testing what the actual physical makeup of the habitat would be and how you know what materials you'd use and stuff like that. Other sites are testing the spacesuits and things like that. So it's a it's a huge project. Yeah. Is there any kind of collaboration between uh, Elon Musk's Mars plans and NASA's? I, I know that SpaceX is now doing a lot of the the, the, the supply work for NASA. The, he's yeah. kind of broken that contract monopoly. But how about the Mars mission? I'm not 100% sure, to be honest. The, the NASA is a huge entity in the sense that there, there's NASA Langley, which is their, their research sort of area. There's uh, the Cape and, and Kennedy where they you know the actual mission control stuff is. There's a facility in Hawaii. Uh, there's a jet propulsion laboratory in California. So NASA is a very diverse, like it's a very large, a lot of people think it would probably be smaller than it is, but it's actually a very big entity with a whole bunch of different branches. So... I would I wouldn't be surprised, but d- definitely not the part I see. But then again, we're doing human factors, so mm-hmm. the actual habitat doesn't look much like a spaceship. It's essentially a, a large tent, but it's built to dimensions that were given to them by engineers that said, "Well, this is how much space you have to work with, and if you can't have it bigger than that, because we'll never be able to get it to Mars." Yeah, right. And seem power. They simulate power, so they the whole thing solar powered, and they one of the big things they do every day is to check the batteries and see how much power they have and. Every device that's in there, they know how much it will drain and how much they can use it. So some factors are, I would say, are incredibly real, and others are, are more. Uh, Dr. Kim Minstead, who's the, the the head PI of the habitat itself, she calls it an analog. It's a, a simulation of mm-hmm. of what the real thing will be like. Well, this has been fascinating, and uh, we'd like to invite you back at another point to talk about some of the other research that you're doing. I know you've got some really uh, interesting projects uh, on the go. So, uh, Olaf, thanks for your time, and um, we look forward to talking to you again. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can't wait to come back. Thanks for having me. Learning Transforms is brought to you by the Faculty of Education and the Association of Graduate Education Students. Learning Transforms is produced by Julie Remy. Sound design is by Xavier Arujo. Special thanks to Olaf Krigolson. I'm Ted Rieken. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. Thanks for listening.